Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I am your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Mike Murray on the show. This is Mike's first time on the show. Uh, he is a writer for Examine. I've spoken about examine.com many times. You may not be aware of it, but they are a fantastic resource for supplement information, and they're not sponsored, they have no biases, they just look at the research and disseminate that for you guys. Uh, he writes for them, uh, so that puts him on like high credibility, right? He's also a registered dietitian, he's a certified strength and conditioning specialist, a competitive bodybuilder, and uh, I knew of Mike through the Muscle Memoir podcast that he used to run. And yeah, I mean, I was actually on his show too, which is really cool because now he's on the Revive Stronger show. And it was a really, really fun chat. We dug into initially just his background, what got him into competitive bodybuilding, how did his recent contest prep go? I always find it interesting to talk to people who compete but also keep their eye on the literature to see if they use any of the evidence that's come out to inform their practice when they compete. And he did use some of it with uh, the Chris Barakat paper on peaking, on peaking for a bodybuilding show. And he used that to influence one of his peaks and uh, we dig into that and how did that go? And then one of the things that he did during his contest prep was he introduced an intra workout. So I just dug into kind of what the rationale was there and what maybe the practical application might be for other individuals that are considering this kind of pre peri intra workout nutrition. And then we dig into some of that, like what supplementation does he consider to be efficacious for like pre workout? We talk a little bit about caffeine, nitrates, beta alanine. And just overall, a, a really fun discussion with Mike here that I think you guys will really enjoy. And uh, he'll definitely be back on to talk a bit more about his training and some training related topics. But uh, as a reminder, uh, if you aren't already subscribed to the podcast, please do subscribe. Please do leave us a comment, a review, any of that good stuff. Share it across social media. All of it is highly appreciated and uh, it allows the podcast to grow and reach a wider audience and educate further people but also keeps us making sure we produce the highest quality content possible without further ado though let's get into the show hi guys welcome back to the revive stronger podcast i'm your host as always steve hall and today i have mike murray on the show and uh, I first discovered Mike uh, from the Muscle Memoir podcast. We actually were just talking off air and I was on his podcast and embarrassingly, I'd actually forgotten that somehow, even though I knew your podcast and I've listened to, I think the vast majority of the episodes, which was a really good podcast, very similar to Revive Strong in terms of the guests that are being interviewed. So it's really cool that I can bring you on to chat because I actually reached out to uh, a lot of the kind of listeners will be aware of examine.com and potentially Kamal who came on the podcast, I believe it was Kamal, who I had on. And I just reached out and I was like, hey, is there anyone on the Examine team? Because I'm aware there's a big team at Examine who you think would be like a, a great person to have on the podcast. Because I'm always looking for new, great minds to have on the show. And he obviously promoted yourself. And I was like, oh yeah, of course, Mike does work behind the scenes. Uh, well, more so behind the scenes for Examine. And so, yeah, it all came together that now I have Mike on my show, which is really nice. So uh, yeah, I don't know where to start with all of that, but I, I'm actually interested. How did you start working with examine.com, Mike? Mm. My uh, introduction to working at examines, <laughs> pretty interesting, at least with respect to like, you know, how people typically get a job. So I found out about opening at examine through Twitter. Kamal basically made a tweet and said, hey, we're looking for 
um, you know, people who are really interested in nutrition science, they have an educational background in the field, but then he put in this little context and he said, but these are people who wouldn't consider themselves as experts per se, right? And interestingly enough, I made this thread like literally a week beforehand on Twitter saying why I don't think registered dietitians are nutrition professionals, right? And so I'm a registered dietitian. So I'm fully aware of like the, you know, what's required to become one. And basically my point was that to be an expert in anything, it requires like this insane level of knowledge about something super specific and nutrition is way too diverse of a field to be considered a nutrition expert, right? And you'll see this all the time with dietitians, right? Like, so dietitians, you know, traditionally work in a clinical setting in a hospital, they treat all kinds of different patients, right? But then you'll see people who have, um, they pursue further certifications in things like diabetes or cancer, right? And it's like, you know, dietitians at baseline can work with these sorts of patients. But then there are people who are like experts in treating those types of patients, right? So I talked about things like sports nutrition or like uh, just like protein specifically, right? Like one single nutrient, right? It's like, oh, well, like Don Lehman or Stu Phillips are experts in protein. So when I reflect on all of this as a dietitian, I'm like, hey, like I know a lot about nutrition um, and different aspects of nutrition but I don't think I'm an expert in anything. And I was like, so I'm someone who fits this criteria. Like I'm not an expert, you know, I'm very interested in nutrition science, I'm a registered dietitian. And basically through that, Kamal ended up reaching out. We had some discussions, I had an interview. And then I ended up joining Examine about maybe like two years ago. Very cool. Yeah, it's such an interesting, I could see almost people being put off being like, oh, you don't want experts like they feel like they have that like i, I am an yeah, expert yeah. like surely like it feels like <laughs> they would want an expert but actually when you frame it in the way you framed it i, I kind of quite like that and i guess uh, it's like we spoke off air you feel like okay nutrition's so large you're kind of a bit of a generalist in that mm -hmm. area versus like being specific down one line but yeah, i i agree with you i think probably far too many people consider themselves like experts where it's like actually like when I think of an expert, there's very few names that come to mind and right. normally it's specifically about one thing. And then, I don't know, <clears throat> you get people who, and I think that's been spoken about recently because the podcast scene has kind of exploded and you'll get names who are like, hey, they're an expert in this field, but then they right. consider themselves, like they start talking about broader topics. It's like, ah, then you see cracks appearing because they <laughs> yeah. quickly show that they really don't know what they're talking about. Uh, which is, yeah, I mean, why you try and stay in your lane a little bit. And it sounds like you respect that quite a lot. And I expect also, at least this is the way I feel, especially after being like a podcast host and talking to so many experts and people, people like who know so much and you just realize like the Dunning-Kruger effect, you're definitely past that. And you're like in this position where you're like, I really know and I'm aware of what I don't know. And uh, yeah, it's but like you said, also, you, you have to know a lot even to be able to talk to an expert and Kind of converse with them which you were certainly very good at on your podcast so yeah i mean i i respect examine.com so highly uh just because the supplement interest industry is so fraught with just charlatans <laughs> and complete crap basically so anyone who works for them or like is in with them i think like 
they must like hold to a high standard. So it to me means like, hey, they they really respect Mike here. So I think lots of people should be respecting you and uh, the work that you're doing. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah, uh, the examine team is phenomenal. Um, there's about thirty of us. It's like literally the the kindest, smartest people I've ever had the pleasure of interacting with. Um, you know, it almost makes me like I, I've joked at times about how like I'm the dumbest person at examine. Like that's just like how these people almost make you feel. And it's like we're all we're all generalists, right? Like very few of us specialize in anything. Like I'm here because considering the content of your podcast, right? It's like, you know, there is this specific need, like we're interested in nutrition, supplementation, exercise science, but it's like within these specific um, subcategories of those fields. And it's like, hey, like Mike is kind of our uh, representative meathead at Examine, right? Like he he kind of fits the criteria here. Um, you know, I make the sports nutrition quizzes every month at examine. So like when it comes to those questions, like I tend to do a lot more of the study summaries and articles in those fields, but it's not all I do. It's actually like a small percentage of what I do. Like within any given week, I'm writing about, you know, liver health and diabetes and cardiovascular disease and all of these different conditions, which, um, you know, are affected by our diet and supplementation regimens. So it's like, None of us are really experts in anything per se, but everyone is just like super smart at examines. So it, it really is a pleasure to work here and to interact with those people on a daily basis. You mentioned the word meathead, and that actually brings us to our first kind of topic here. Well, because we haven't actually mentioned it, but you're a competitive bodybuilder. Um, I believe this was this your second season that you've just finished. Like, how how long ago did you step off stage? Now, are you well and truly recovered, or? Uh, how are you feeling? So I think this is my 10th week post-competitive season. It's like, uh, I don't know, it's my second competitive season, but it's the first time I stepped on stage. And that's because my first rodeo was in like 2019. So I basically uh, dieted for 22 weeks, was like a month out from my first show. And then, you know, COVID happened and everything got canceled. So that that kind of like, you know, it left a bad taste in my mouth. And I just like, I really wanted to get back on stage. But then also it was like, you know, I really wanted to improve my look, right? Like, I really want to improve my overall muscularity. So I ended up taking a few years off to improve. And then, yeah, so this was my first like real contest prep but like i basically went through like the whole thing in 2019 i just didn't get to make it on stage but at this point 10 weeks post contest how am i feeling uh like i'm almost back to normal so last week or two weeks ago was the first week where i hit like an average sleep duration of seven seven hours per night and like I was pumped and I was like, I'm coming. <laughs> like, it's finally time to get back to like productive training to put on some muscle. And then I ended up getting hit with like an upper respiratory tract infection and a back injury at the same time. So I've been derailed for like a week and a half, which is just like really took the wind out of my sails. So I'm like, finally, 
I feel pretty good again. Like I can be productive in the gym and I got smacked with this. So like getting better, but like, I'm not a hundred percent there yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think like 10 weeks, depending if you take, I, did you use like a recovery diet type of approach, quite an assertive, are you quite considerably heavier than your stage weight? How did you go about that process? Oh, for sure. So like, um, I just wanted to get out of that deficit ASAP. Right. And it's like, of course, like there are better and worse ways to go about that. Right. Like we don't want to put on, you know, excessive amounts of fat, but at the end of the day, like I'm not going to feel better. Like hormone levels, sleep are not going to get better until I put a significant amount of fat on this body. So I was pretty aggressive coming out. Um, I guess I would say I was like, mainly influenced by Birdo's recovery diet, like what he posted from his most recent. So basically the goal was to put on like 10 pounds in a month. And at this point I'm up about 15, 17 pounds from like stage weight. And that's over 10 weeks. Like it's fine with me. Like I just, I was just at the point where it's like, I don't know. I'm just like not attached to the look when it comes to competing. Like I don't, I don't really care. Like, um, so I was just like, Hey, I want to get back to productive training as soon as possible. Also, like I'm someone whose sleep gets like really messed up in prep. Like it happens to everyone at some point, but I'm like extremely sensitive to it. And it probably happened. Like if I get just a little too assertive with the deficit, you know, um, my sleep will take a hit. And then also I feel like the like level of body fat where my sleep starts to take a hit is probably higher than most people, you know? So I have no idea. These are just like (laughs) random numbers, but let's say like most people, once they get to like around seven, 8% body fat, like just sleep starts taking a hit. Mine is probably like a few percentage points higher. So like I had like a 30 week contest prep in total, maybe a little bit longer. And my sleep was pretty bad for, like three months, three, four months. Whereas for most people, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here, like based on everything you've noticed with clients and everything else, I feel like most people like maybe two months, maybe one month. But for me, it's like twice that amount of time with disrupted sleep. That's not good. (laughs) Yeah, man, for me, at least again, from the people I've spoken to and when like anecdotally from what I see online, most people the sleep and then poor energy levels and like just no like energy for anything in life are the worst symptoms. It's not the hunger. It's not like feeling cold. It's like yep. having no energy and that's coupled with terrible sleep. And yeah, I would say most people sleep, they can hold on to it for the vast majority of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think you're probably towards that slight extreme of unfortunately <laughs> again here a little bit earlier because I assume you do all the things that you know you should be doing. Like you're aware of sleep hygiene and Mm -hmm. caffeine and everything like that. Some people aren't. And I think they're probably in maybe even a better position than you are because they just have that genetic kind of capability or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's interesting. And also, yeah, it makes, as soon as you were kind of talking through that, again, it's very individual, that post-show period and where I kind of, I think it's been, we still talk about body fat settling points, but I think it's been reframed as like this lower and upper intervention point yeah. almost. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it sounds like you're into up, sorry, lower intervention points, just a bit higher than your average person. So you're saying like maybe eight, 10% is for some guys, but for you, it's like 12, 14%. Mm-hmm. So you need to kind of, what might look like a bit more of an, like an assertive rebound to you is like, that's as you just 
typical for me whereas for someone else could be like oh i could gain half that amount of weight in that time feel fine it's just that kind of individual variation that you see person to person and no oh sorry no go on no i was just gonna say i actually skipped a beat uh i don't know how quickly you can go through this but i actually was interested to see how initially you even got into bodybuilding like when you you said this was your second season what led mm-hmm. you wanting to compete at your first season? I'm always interested, especially because I think you're a similar age to me. You like coming up to 30 or something like that. It's like influence is often similar. Yeah, you're correct. So I am 26. Um, so my, honestly, a, like a lot of the rationale behind my first competitive season was simply because I could have competed as a junior. And I felt like I could have done some real damage as a junior. Um, And then also, so if that wasn't the case, if I couldn't have competed as a junior that season, I probably wouldn't have competed at all. Um, And that's just because the whole point of competing for me is literally because I enjoy competition. So something I often tell people when it comes to bodybuilding is that, I'm interested in competitive bodybuilding simply because I love the bodybuilding lifestyle. Um, I love lifting weights. I like the nutrition side of things. I even like the suffering involved in contest prep and seeing the changes that correspond with that. But I don't like getting on stage. I don't like posing. I don't care for any of it. I'm just someone who loves lifting weights and wants to express that love through something competitive. And the outlets for that are basically bodybuilding and powerlifting. And I used to compete in powerlifting. I did relatively well as a powerlifter at a local level. So overall, I was a pretty bad powerlifter. <laughs> but I dealt with some injuries, ones which like still bother me to this day. And for that reason, I just didn't want to be pigeonholed into those movements anymore. And it was like, so this is the, this is the outlet that's left. It is, you know, getting on stage in the posing trunks and getting out there. And it's like, yeah, like exactly to what I thought. I didn't really like being on stage. I actually didn't really like the process of competing whatsoever. It was just kind of like the end product of doing something that I wanted to do so I guess I didn't really have a good reason for why I got into bodybuilding specifically it was just like hey I'm on this path love the path I love walking down this path uh but it's like where does the path lead to and it's like I guess this and it's like you know it's like almost like uh I got to the top of the mountain and like I got the view right i was like it's not even that good of a view like just climbing up the mountain was way cooler and way more enjoyable (laughs) i appreciate the honesty because yeah i think people can tend to glorify competing where it's like this amazing experience for everyone and you you should be loving your time on stage but i mean there's a lot of annoying things about actually going on stage like the travel the tan the shaving again the posing like it's like I enjoy seeing myself look cool in poses, but the actual like it's a lot of homework and like study you have to do to become a good poser. And some people yes. love that, like posing to music. 
this is not something I personally love either. <laughs> so I uh, I relate to you there for sure. I'm uh I'm actually really interested to hear your perspective. So to your point, do you personally like enjoy being on stage? Like do you do you really enjoy that or no? So yeah, it's a good question. I do, but unfortunately it does depend on how competitive I am on stage. So if okay. I'm on stage and in the past I was not very competitive, <laughs> like I would be on there and I'd be like, I'd be very clueless to how I did. And now I really understand, like, you know, if mm -hmm. you're in the first call outs, you know, if you're in the middle, like, you know how you're doing. The ignorance was kind of bliss in the past, whereas now I really know. So I've been on stage before and when I know I'm not really competing for like a top five placing or top mm -hmm. three placing, like it's it's not the most fun thing, especially when you're just like stood at the back watching those guys compete for that top five. And you're like, hey, damn. Um, fortunately enough, like I've been fortunate enough with my last season, I am te I tend to be in the mix. but And that makes it fun, like competing against others. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's, uh, I, the thing that I think of often is, you know, they have the pose down uh, at the right. end. Mm -hmm. I never enjoy that part. So I think there's like, if you don't enjoy that part, you probably don't love the stage experience like the most. For some people, you just see them, they're loving the whole time. They're posing the entire time. Like they're getting in the mix. They're like shoving everyone. I'm just like at the side, like, okay, you guys, do I have to hit some poses? Like really? <laughs> Dude, I, uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, like I've never been interested in having an individual routine. Um, I really, I really gave it the old college try, you know, this for this season, just like, you know, it's just like, Hey, you're not really interested in this, but like put your all into it and like, see if you do like it. And like for my one show, like I had this choreographed routine, did the whole thing. And, you know, I just like thought about it after and I'm like, I really, I really don't like that. Like whatsoever. Like, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I tried to like embody like Terrence Ruffin and be like, no, 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 you really do enjoy this creative, um, this creative part of bodybuilding and you're going to get into it and you're going to like it. Like you just have to get it. Like you just think you don't like it. It's like, no, no, no. I put, I put my all into that. I really tried to convince myself that this is what I enjoyed. And I just like, <laughs> I didn't like, I don't, I have no interest in individual routines or anything else, which, um, you know, then I take a step back and I'm like, so should you really be bodybuilding if like you don't like posing you don't like this you're like why even get on stage and then i'm like i don't know so then i'm like do other people feel like i do <laughs> or like should i just like step away from this world so when i hear you say stuff like that, i'm like oh like you're not yeah. too different from me yeah for sure yeah i mean i feel the same way about the individual routine it just doesn't come easily to me and it's it's nothing i like like i also I don't know if this influences it, but I don't have the best flow and shape. So like when I see myself Same. hitting like a, I could hit Terrence Ruffin's poses and I'm like, that just looks terrible on me. <laughs> I can't hit this pose. So I'm just like, man, I have to like choreograph this in a way and like contort myself to somehow have like some decent looking posing going on. I'm just glad it's not judged. Uh, but I do, again, it's great for photos because this is the time where the professional right. photographer can like get all the good shots of you. So I'm like, hey, I need to hit some good shots so I can like have those because that's kind of your reward big time at the end of it. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. where you place and when you look back, you don't look back at the trophies. You're really looking back like, hey, the photos, like, oh man, I got real shredded or whatever right. it might be. And I'm with you where uh, I try powerlifting and I'm, I kind of think of it like, hey, this is like chicken, rice and broccoli and I have to eat this for life. But 
like bodybuilding is like flexible dieting like i can hit so many different foods and enjoy like yes. i'm definitely going to enjoy this exercise variation and like this freedom to just do so many different things mm-hmm. so yeah bodybuilding i think i reckon there's a, f- a number of listeners who feel similar to us where it's just like hey they don't love the time on stage but they mm-hmm. need that competitive outlet like outlet right. for themselves so yeah it's i've never really thought about it like that but yeah you brought that out in me <laughs> <laughs> how so in terms of um the prep I'm always interested, especially for people who like clearly you're very invested in the science evidence-based practice. How did, did you use any kind of tools that you hadn't used in previous preps that you used this time around, like refeeds, diet breaks, or kind of anything within your peaking strategy that was different, that was like based off the literature? So in my first prep, I actually never ended up practicing peaking because again, I was like four weeks out. It was basically like, it was basically like around the time where I was like a week out from like a practice run is when I found out like all my shows were canceled. I remember having this conversation with a colleague and he was like, dude, just like stick it out and like get that experience. But I'm like, I'm also not convinced that like, you know, uh, a successful peak from four years ago would extend and have any application to my physiology, you know, the next go around. So I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to like eat a pizza. And that was it. So I never practiced. Peaking. <laughs> and then this time around, um, to be honest, like I had a lot of difficulty with peaking. Um, peaking is something that like always made me nervous about bodybuilding. And that like kind of bothered me, you know, where it was like the fact that your body becomes so fickle to the point where, you know, just like slight nutrient adjustments, timing can like really impact how you look, obviously. So I wanted to be like conservative with my adjustments, but then also I ran into some other issues, which we might come back to. So that I ended up getting a little more experimental and I played around with um, actually the peaking protocol that Chris Bearcat published. Did you read that paper? Uh, with the fat loading, uh, like the to yeah. fill the like triglyceride stores. Yes, I had uh, Scott Stevenson was on that paper, and I had Scott on to kind of talk through it. So yeah, I, I also practiced a little bit of fat loading my last prep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so there's the review paper, which is Chris Scott, Guillermo Escalante's on there too, I believe. But then there's also um, just a case study, and it's just Chris, and that's been published where it was like his specific macros and like electrolyte consumption fluids and everything else. So I like combined both those and looked at those and I thought it was pretty interesting. And I ended up playing around with that. And actually my best look I achieved was when I ran that protocol. I only did it once. And then I ended up trying to do something a bit less dynamic and keep more variable steady because that was like, um, yeah, there was like three or four days of like pretty low carb intake and fat loading to so the higher fat intake. And then basically you just swap that to the point where um, carbohydrate loading into the show. And like, it's not, it's not that complex per se, because like, so for me, I did implement refeeds during, during prep. So I had a good idea of what those carbohydrate loading days were supposed to be. Um, which again, like a problem I ran into is that those numbers, which on my refeed days were adequate, ended up 
not being adequate when I ran this protocol, which was super weird. Um, which was like, I ended up needing like 200 grams of carbs or more to even get close to filling out. And I was like, what, what is, what is going on? So basically one of the issues I ran into with prep is that my look was like really unpredictable. Um, one of that was because of the peaking protocol. Another one was because I ran into like issues with edema. So my lower sure. body was just like swelled up like a balloon for basically like the last few months of prep. And it got to the point where um, I had to like bring down my leg training volume and I was training them once per week, which is fine, but I was only doing like a couple of hard sets per body part. There were times where I literally had to like lock myself in my room and like not go outside for a walk <laughs> because like, it was just like, dude, like you can't tolerate any more lower body fatigue. So basically it got to the point where like, I could only assess my visual progress accurately like once a week wow. when I was recovered from lower body training where I had like a lower cardio day. And then it would be like, oh, okay, there's the separation in your legs. And like this happened and these changes. So like all of those things combined. And I was just like, I don't even know. I don't even know what to do with this body at this point. It is just <laughs> not, <laughs> it is just not, um, you know, going along with, with what I want to do. So yeah, prep was uh, an interesting experience, kind of a disaster from some point. Peaking, played around with different strategies, like like the things I mentioned. And then, yeah, I definitely utilized refeeds, but those didn't come in until I was like, I don't know, like two thirds of the way through prep. Outside of that, it was just like regular intake, same thing every day. And then just like incrementally coming down. It wasn't until I got like, like objectively lean that I started implementing those. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. And man, uh, the word uh, unpredictable <clears throat> for me at least as a bodybuilding coach and as a competitor, that is the biggest nightmare when you're dealing, like if I'm dealing with a client and I'm like, I make this change and then like, I can't be certain what the outcome is. That's the most, like I'm always like with peak weeks for me, I, I love predictability. I'm like, I make mm -hmm. this change. It does this. I know exactly what was the change because like mm -hmm. you said, keep many variables under control. So yeah, I've kind of moved a little bit away from any peaking strategies that manipulate too many variables because I'm just like, I can't be sure what change led to what. And uh, I think for some people, the stress of the unknown in that scenario mm -hmm. is not worth worth it to them for the potential upside. So yeah, it's, and to your, I agree with you completely. When you practice peaks, like it has to be so like sip like so close to already you're competing because your physiology is, is changing on a like week to week basis and so yeah. you you can't practice a peak and just like copy and paste and be like yeah yeah, yeah just work <laughs> just follow that yeah to your point about like predictability so you know the protocol outlined by Bearcat and colleagues is like you know it's dynamic but i felt it was worth experimenting with i felt like i had the data and an understanding of what was going on nutritionally where I could implement it reasonably well. And I did implement it reasonably well, but something, you know, as I was looking at different peaking strategies and reminding myself of uh, something I found terrifying was uh, Cliff Wilson's <laughs> rapid backloading where I was like, this is so interesting, but I just like couldn't commit myself to even experimenting with it. 
just because of like how aggressive it is and like how much could potentially gone wrong. Have you ever tried utilizing that with yourself or with clients? No, uh, I ha- with clients, uh, not yet, actually. Uh, I am, I have a client who is going to WMBF World and we're experimenting with it this week because Wayans, oh, okay. I believe Wayans is like two days before or something and he's right on the cusp of like the lightweights basically. And we're like, mm-hmm. you want to be a heavy lightweight versus like a light medium or whatever right. it might be. So I was like, "Hey, we could. We've got time." He's da- he's damn lean at the moment. So I was just like, y- "You're in a you're a prime candidate." He responds really well to carbs. He doesn't like look soft when you start carving him. He just looks better and better. Like the more you give him. So I was like, "Hey, so we're experimenting with a rapid backload this week, and then if it goes well, we're just like run that week to week, and then into worlds for the reason of making weight." But it's not. Yeah, it's, I'm similar to you. I'm very uh, conservative for the most part with my peaking, and I did consider it for 2021. But I'm also maybe similar to you where I'm quite a stressful wearing like like I, I like knowing how things are going. So I tended to much prefer like a slow back load. So even like a progressive linear load through the week. Um, so just raising carbs every day and that kind of, I don't know, for me, who's a bit of a stress head, I don't know, a rapid back load, unless I had practiced it quite a few times, it would kind of, yeah, I'd be nervous about it. <laughs> yeah, that was um, the incremental increase during the week was something I utilized for my other two shows. And it was just like, yeah, like I had the data there for my refeeds where it's like, Hey, like when you increase by this much, you look like this on the second day of the refeed. You look like this on the day after the refeed. Um, you look like this, you know, when you go back to a normal intake after two days of refeeding and it's just like, so when did you look best? Did you look best on the second day of the refeed after a lower day, after two days of refeeding? And it's like, add that data. And like, you know, it made for, um, again, like I think my best look was when I utilized the Bearcat protocol, but you know, with that said, the more consistent approach is definitely like less stress and anxiety behind that because I had all of that data from the weeks prior where I could be like, yeah, like I'm more or less know how I'm going to look utilizing this. Yeah. It's kind of weighing up the risk versus yeah. reward for, for various things. Um, so I guess uh, if you got any, I know it's so close cause you just competed, but do you already have ideas of where you want to go uh, in future? Like, do you have like a, a date in mind or is it more of a case of, Hey, I'm just, focusing on like building more muscle now definitely the latter um yeah i don't know it's something i've thought a lot about after the competitive season it was like so it didn't go well i didn't place well um no and i'm fine with sharing why it was like something i expected so like i already mentioned how from like an overall muscularity perspective like you know, I, I'm definitely for my height. Cause I'm about five ten, and my stage weight was carved up like 159, 160 lowest I got in prep was like okay. 155. Um, I think we're around like the same height, right? I'm also five ten, So yeah. And what's I, your, and what's your stage weight? Uh, I was around 170. Uh, carved up like I, up to 175 on one of the show days which is like I don't know what happened there I was just like man that's heavy <laughs> so yeah so to my point uh you got you got a lot more muscle than I do <laughs> and I need I need a lot, a lot more muscle um and I competed in classic and basically like 
I got feedback from the judges at the show where I looked the best at my first show. They just like didn't answer me. That's interesting. Um, and at the second one, every single judge said the same thing. And it was something I already knew. And it was like, hey, man, like your upper body's small. That's basically what they said. <laughs> and I was like, I know that. I know that. Like back when I was a mediocre powerlifter, I had a good squat, solid deadlift, and my bench sucked. And it was like, oh, yeah, by the way, like you have like the smallest chest, delts, and triceps out of everyone competing in this weight class. So, like, what a surprise. So, like, you know what I mean? As a body, it's like, yeah, everybody's still small. I mean, one of the judges even was like, hey, man, like your lower body kind of overpowers your upper body. And it's just like, especially in classic, like, that's not a yeah. good look. If anything, your upper should overpower your lower in classic. Like, that would be preferred. So, yeah, that wasn't. That wasn't great, but um, it's something I thought a lot about in terms of my future plans. And like, I don't know, maybe I'll get back on stage. Like, maybe I won't. Like, I didn't do well, but when I think about, you know, what if I did get my pro card this season? Would that have changed anything? And I don't think it would have. <laughs> like, I don't. I wouldn't have felt better about the season. I probably still would have been like, I didn't like being on stage. Traveling was annoying. <laughs> uh, you know going to tanning the day before and then tanning the morning of and like all these little things like still wouldn't have liked it like honestly so i i i guess that's a sign in itself right the fact like i remember when my first contest prep got shut down when that ended while i was eating that pizza i was like I can't wait to get into the off season and like build all this muscle. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to get on that stage and like, it's going to be lights out and be so much better than I was the first time. And I just like got done with this one. And I was like, yeah. And it's like, so like you, like you didn't do well. And like you do this for competition. Like, aren't you like fired up? And I'm like, no, like, I don't, I don't really care. (laughs) So maybe, maybe it'll, it'll come back to me in like four years and it's like even even if i did plan on competing again it would be like a four-year off season because i just my upper body needs to get significantly bigger to do well and if i'm not going to do well i don't really want to be on stage anyway you know what i mean so it's like the fact that the off season would be pretty long even if i do want to get back to competing it's just like i'm gonna do the same stuff i would have did anyway you know regardless of whether i wanted to get back on stage in the future or not so like just like i'm just gonna train and eat in a progressive manner like i always do and we'll see if you know the spark comes back maybe it will maybe it won't but like you know uh whatever you know we want to call a bodybuilder right whether that's someone who asks like that's an intro that's almost like a side tangent right like if you don't compete in bodybuilding are you a bodybuilder it's like i don't know but it's like you know if we just call someone who consistently lives the lifestyle of bodybuilder then it's just like yeah i'm gonna keep being a bodybuilder, irrespective of whether I plan on getting back on stage or not. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we 
get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better. If you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I find it funny when people are like really like, uh, I don't know, it's like some bodybuilder's like, no, if you don't compete, you're not a bodybuilder. It's like, right. why do you care so much about this term? Like, <laughs> call yourself a competitive bodybuilder if you want. Like, I don't know, uh, like bodybuilding is not really contest prep in many ways. So yeah, yeah I, I completely understand where you're coming from. And I think there's probably a lot of people uh, even potentially listening, done their season and they're not thrilled with how it went either. And they, uh, you kind of, when you're that lean, you really get to see where your weaknesses are and mm -hmm. also your strengths. Like you said, your legs are definitely a strong point. And it just then gives you a bit of a focus and like, hey, whether you're not going to, you're going to compete in future or not, you're still going to invest heavily into this thing. Because like you right. said, you don't, I think the, the saying goes, we don't like train and eat and do all of this to compete. We compete because right. we do the lifestyle type of thing. And 100%. Some, some people just choose not to to take it there and yeah, who knows if you like, you're feeling yourself, you're like, my upper body has definitely come on a lot. Like, yeah, yeah. The time, you got a stress-free year or something, mm -hmm. diet down and uh, take the stage again. So that's cool. Right. Um, a question I did have for you, actually, I think is interesting because we've mostly talked about your experience, which I I personally uh, just like indulge you myself. But uh, something you did do was you added an intra workout, which I think is interesting because it's not something I don't think has been spoken about much on this podcast at all, and I haven't heard it spoken about just a ton recently, is like intra-workout nutrition. And uh, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts surrounding why you decided to implement some intra-workout nutrition and maybe your thoughts just generally on practical kind of application if people are thinking, hey, should I be taking one too? Mm, yeah, so the reason I started implementing um, intra-workout nutrition was because I think just generally speaking, when you're in that depleted state during contest prep, the peri-workout window, what you're consuming within that period of time probably becomes more important. Um, it's something I've noticed where it's like in the off season, it's like, oh, I haven't eaten in four hours. It's like, I'm just going to go lift. And like, I don't think twice about it. Whereas when I'm like in a very depleted state, it's just like, I ate two hours ago and I didn't start working out yet. Like, is my performance going to suck? And it's like, actually based on experience, it is going to kind of suck. Like, you know what I mean? Like you're literally going to be hungry during your workout and that's distracting. I think there's actually like, there's one paper that more or less, it was like one of those like breakfast studies, right? Where they compared like eating something to placebo and like a viscous. Uh, so the placebo is like basically like this, viscous like non-energy containing mush and they compared it to like a control that didn't consume anything and basically like one of the reasons they think that you see similar performance in people who like actually consume calories and people who consume something that didn't contain many calories is basically like um they felt full after right like they weren't hungry during the workout so they think like that could be one of the mechanisms explaining why we didn't see a difference in performance for those conditions. So I think the peri workout window becomes more important when you're not depleted state, like when you're consuming. And I think intra workout, you know, it 
increases in importance? Is there direct data, you know, showing that an intra workout in certain conditions increases resistance exercise performance specifically? Like, eh, like sort of, not really. Um, in 2022, there is a meta-analysis published. I believe Helms was one of the authors on the paper. And I think they combined studies that had participants either consume something pre-workout or consume something intra-workout or both. So kind of removes like the granularity, right? Because we're combining all of those studies. But basically, they showed that carbohydrate consumption pre-slash-intra-workout increased the amount of volume performed um, particularly in studies where it was compared, particularly in studies where the session duration was at least 45 minutes. Um, also, there was this correlation with like the number of hard sets performed. So the more like hard sets of failure you perform, the more likely it is you're going to see a benefit in performance from like that pre-inch workout carbohydrate intake. And then the other moderating variable was the uh, amount of time fasted. So if you, you know, if, if there was an overnight fast of at least eight hours beforehand, right, then carbohydrate consumption became more influential on performance. And that like makes sense, right? It's like, you know, if you wake up and it's just like one person ate like a 500 calorie breakfast containing like, you know, 50, 75 grams of carbs. And the other person just trained fasted. Like it's really not all that surprising <laughs> that the carbohydrates help there. And then also there's some interesting research in um, studies that they didn't have the participants consume the carbohydrates per se. They just had them, swish around in their mouth a carbohydrate containing solution and then spit it out and there's actually a few studies that showed that when you um have a carbohydrate mouth rinse in a fasted state that improves performance compared to people who just fasted so even when like you're not actually consuming the carbohydrates there's an improvement in performance there um, and it seems like the hypothesis is, and I think there's like decent enough evidence to support this is that just the presence of carbohydrate in the mouth stimulates these regions in the brain, um, associated basically like with the reward system. So the presence of carbohydrate in the mouth can increase motivation, um, decrease rating of perceived exertion and basically that's that's the mechanism resulting in this effect of improved performance so when i consider all of that data right i mean being like 16 20 weeks into contest prep like i don't know are you just like it you're like you're in this depleted state all the time right so it's like after an overnight fast like liver glycogen is depleted specifically, like glycogen levels are going to be lower. And it's like glycogen levels are just like permanently lowered <laughs> during prep. I, I don't think it's far-fetched to think that, you know, these sorts of interventions, their magnitude of effect would increase. Um, 
and my anecdotal experience is that I felt I felt like I had a little more during my sessions when I was having an intra workout shake. I felt you know that my my focus during my session, whereas it would start to fall off, like after the first two exercises and I was like 35 minutes, like I just had a little more where it wasn't as much of a bad time, you know, doing those ladder exercises, getting those few extra sets and getting, getting a sufficient volume in. And yeah, even on like the first couple of exercises in the session on like, you know, like the third set of like the first exercise or something like that. Uh, it seemed to me when I looked at my data, that you know i was getting an extra rep that like wasn't just a consequence of like last week's work leading into an increase it, it seemed to be you know based on the trends of the data that like there was i was getting a little something extra from that intra workout carbohydrate intake i think you answered that question really really well and if i was only to summarize it, it was the point you kind of started out with was like hey if you're in a glycogen depleted state and you have some carbohydrates that can then be stored or kind of come in as muscle glycogen, uh, then it's probably going to help that person in that scenario. So I know, yeah, intra workouts, some people are like, hey, they're not evidence-based, and other people are like, a lot of people anecdotally seem to like them, and a lot of bodybuilders seem to like them too. And it's something I've just used. I think uh, at one point I was doing a lot of uh, twice-daily training. I haven't done that for a long time now but I was using them as part of that strategy. And then I've just held on to them a lot, but it's unfortunate because you mentioned, obviously this was a, a prep application. And I think I'm, I'm completely with you that I think prep is probably one of the times mm -hmm. where people would benefit most. Cause like you said, permanently like depleted, it's probably the one time you also don't want to like, have a uh, liquid calories, which is uh, frustrating. Did you consider just doing the, uh, the old swig and like spout? It's not, it's not super practical. I would imagine. Um, I, I didn't, I don't, I don't have a good explanation as for why. So I actually, I could have successfully implemented it theoretically because I do a lot of my training at home. Um, so it's like, you know, I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to worry about yeah. uh, feeling self-conscious of people, you know, gazing at me as I make my way to like the trash can to like spit out the powerade <laughs> I just considered. <laughs> so I could have done it in peace and quiet, but for every reason I didn't, I just like made the decision to like, you know, pull some carbohydrate from like these other places to just put like 20, 25 grams in into workout. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I read uh, the immediate thought that comes to mind. And I imagine is the, this could happen like, is bulimia that's like the thing that comes to mind is like hey people seeing this really lean individual like in prep and then they're like spitting out this thing into the like toilet or whatever, wherever they're going into the bin it's like hey this person has a problem and i don't know uh, i worry people even worry about like refeeds having like it's yeah. like hey this could be like lean to be binge eating behavior I, i'd worry if someone started implementing this this swigging of the carbohydrates like it it's a little bit bulimic like so I think, uh, and also there's theory that having the carbs there is probably a good idea too for the reasons you outlined. Are there any other supplements around the workout that you have experimented with and particularly like? Uh, so I am a certified caffeine. I consume a lot of caffeine. I have a very high tolerance for caffeine. Um, I don't, I don't experience the side effects other people experience from like really high intakes um like i've consumed like over a thousand milligrams at like multiple 
points in my life and i just like don't get like the jitters or the, like the nervousness and or anything else like that like for me like for me to sense an ergogenic effect from caffeine because like i'm someone who needs like six milligrams per kilogram of body weight which wow. is like which is basically, you know, that is the upper end of the range, which the research consistently shows to have some sort of ergogenic effect. Whereas I have people, I have friends who are like, they're bigger than me by like, you know, 20, 30 pounds. And they'll have like a monster, you know, 140 milligrams of caffeine. They're like, dude, couldn't have more than one. I'm like, what? I'm like, this is like drinking water. I don't understand <laughs> <laughs> what you mean. So I definitely utilize caffeine and... Yeah, I mean, caffeine just helps for physical performance generally. There's this, I mean, for like whether it's endurance, muscular endurance, even just like peak power, um, all of these different aspects, there's like at least a small effect size. But like at the end of the day, I just like how caffeine makes me feel. <laughs> like that's why I take it. But like, yeah, the data is there to show that it might help your lifting performance. Um, other than that, I take creatine. And that might just be like more of a habit at this point, to be honest with you. And it's just like, yeah, like, you know, it's the most, probably the most research behind it in terms of supplements for lifting to improve um, strength and body composition, you know, except for the fact that uh, there's that recent meta-analysis that Schoenfeld and Alan Aragon were on. Are you familiar with that? I think Burke was the first author and they looked at <laughs> They uh they looked at studies that only use like direct measures of muscle hypertrophy as opposed to um you know like lean mass or whatever from Dexter. They were using like so it had to be like ultrasound muscle thickness measurements and stuff like that. There's actually no significant effect of combining creatine with resistance exercise. It's like, oh, you know, maybe it doesn't do much besides like make you hold a little bit more water. Maybe it doesn't do all that much, but it's just like, at this point, the research for creatine has been expanding in all these different directions. Um, you know, when it comes to brain health, there's even like a little bit of stuff for like glycemic control um, and just like healthy aging in general. I actually recently wrote an article, for example, it's not, it's not out yet, but it was basically looking at the body of evidence concerning uh, creatine and cognitive function. So whether supplementing with creatine enhances cognitive function and the data is mixed, but there is some pretty compelling evidence when it comes to uh, scenarios of elevated stress, right? So like in situations of sleep deprivation or like very complex energy demanding cognitive tasks, um, also hypoxic environments. There's been at least one study looking at that. And in those situations, the effect of creatine on cognitive function seems to be, um, it's more consistent and of a larger magnitude than if like you're just like a healthy young adult supplement with it. Also older adults seem to benefit more from it when it comes to cognitive function. So when you look at like just the general health benefits of creatine, um, like I think, I think it makes sense the supplement, especially if, uh, if you happen to be someone who doesn't consume, um, foods that are rich in creatine. So if like you consume a plant-based diet, if you're a vegan, if you're a vegetarian, not, not much, if any dietary creatine there. So, and there's been at least, I think there's one study in vegans and vegetarians that found 
that supplementing with creatine enhanced cognitive function. So that might be a population of interest where it makes even more sense to supplement with creatine. But it's like, yeah, at this point, can I say like, hey, if you want to maximize increases in muscle size and strength, like you need to supplement with creatine. It's like, like, I think it, I think it probably helps a little, like, you know, like it's still there. But again, like that recent meta-analysis is like, oof, that, that was a major blow <laughs> to creatine. Have yeah, you discussed I, uh, that on the podcast? I haven't discussed it. <laughs> I don't know if it was one of those where I was just like, man, this is the one thing we had as naturals <laughs> that could like actually do something little for us. And I was just like trying to brush it aside a little bit. So I think that's what I ended up doing in my head. I was just, and also for the same things you said here, where it's like, hey, there's there's so many other benefits of creatine that yeah. uh, I'm still comfortable recommending it to people mm-hmm. for the, the, the cause everyone's interested in health generally. And it seems like there's multiple reasons that it could also help there, which is really cool um, that that's also a factor. And uh, it's quite nice that your supplementation is pretty simple. Uh, I don't know why as part of someone at examine, I thought maybe like you look at all the supplements and or, or many of them and maybe you'll be more likely to try things. I'm not sure if that would have been, a, it's clearly not a fair assumption, but. Uh, oh, that, that's a really interesting point. You know what? I think on average, that's what someone would expect of someone who works at examine you know we read through nutrition and supplementation science every single day you know we're aware of the latest research on these things so it's like oh you're probably taking a lot of supplements because like you're aware of the and it's like uh you know it, it might be the other way around for me actually because i'm always reading this data and because i'm just like and because i have you know, a pretty good understanding of research methodology. Um, I'm just like underwhelmed by the data for most of these supplements. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think it's worth spending my money on that. Um, so for example, I did a little bit of homework for this podcast, Steve, since, since you gave me the outline ahead of time, I did a little bit of homework and you mentioned, you know, whether there is anything uh, interesting on nitrates recently. Um, another thing I looked at was beta alanine, you know, has anything interesting come out regarding these supplements? Cause these are, these have always been like fringe supplements in the field where it's like, yeah, give you a little bit of something, but like, does it, does it really work? Um, there was one fairly recent, I think it was published in 2023 beta alanine study. It was, I think the first like longitudinal intervention study that looked at changes in um, muscle thickness over time from daily supplementation with beta alanine. It was by Camargo, I think it's how it's pronounced. It was actually the same author as the one who ran the study that looked at whether uh, like utilizing a strength phase before hypertrophy phase, like in hand. Do you remember that study? Yes, yeah. People were, people were like freaking out about that one a few years ago, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah that I, went past quite quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no one talks about it anymore, huh? Uh, I think it was the same lead author. And basically, it was in like resistance training participants, which in the research setting, these are people with like 5.5 years on average resistance training experience. They could squat like 1.25 times their body weight, bench their body weight. And they found that there were no differences in muscle thickness measurements, um, 1RM strength, or muscular endurance, which was like 60% of 1RM and reps of failure, like beta alanine didn't enhance any of these outcomes. And then I was like looking at, I was like, yeah, but they're also resistance trained. It was only eight weeks. Like, do we have 
the technology to be able to that is sensitive enough to detect like very small changes in muscle size and then also be able to detect a statistically significant difference between groups and i was like so yeah maybe that wasn't the case but then they also like tracked changes in training volume and it didn't even like enhance training volume compared to the placebo so i'm like yeah there's probably nothing going on here so beta outing doesn't look great um you know at least in terms of like getting jacked and strong like for other things like combat sports like could be useful um the other one's nitrates and i mean there's some stuff it's it's, it's a really small effect size though like there was a recent meta-analysis looking at um they actually just looked at studies that had interventions that utilized uh like the bench press or back squat, which I thought was interesting. Like usually it would be like a meta-analysis on like um, peak power and muscular endurance. And they're like, no, just the bench press <laughs> and back squat. And they found a moderate effect size for um, increasing reps to failure for nitrate supplementation beforehand. So I was just saying, there's also a meta-analysis showing that it was like, it's like a small, like five, I think, I think it was a 5% increase in peak power output with nitrate supplementation. So it's like, it's um there's a small effect there but i don't know if you've ever looked at like how much beetroot juice shots are which is usually what they're using in these studies. these things are expensive yeah i've looked <laughs> these things are expensive but yeah. it's like for small effect size and this is effect size comparable to like caffeine which is much cheaper especially if you're just like drinking coffee or something um so that's kind of a downside like personally i don't i don't supplement with nitrates uh, the approach I take is I consume a nitrate rich diet and it's like, we don't really have much evidence showing that that's equally effective to my knowledge. There's been one study that looked at implementing a high nitrate diet. I think it was six, it was a six day intervention. And so the diet contained basically like, I think it was like 40 grams of raw spinach and like had some like sauteed collard greens in it. Those are two like very rich. So that was like the main difference. So they jacked up nitrate intake through those uh, green leafy vegetables. And they looked at changes in repeated sprint ability. Um, they looked at like the oxygen cost of exercise during like moderate intensity cycling or something. So not really, not really of interest to your listeners probably. And there was like this, um, they use like this knee extension protocol where it was so they did maximal voluntary isometric contraction and they did like intermittent contractions at like 70 percent of maximum and they found that the that the nitrate rich diet increased power output in the second half of the sprints right so evidence for like a little bit of like a muscular endurance effect there and then the same thing with the um, intermittent submaximal isometric contractions. Basically, they found that like the high nitrate diet, they were able to, they were able to do like forty two of those until they fatigued, and like thirty two on the control diet. So again, like another some more evidence of a benefit for, for muscular endurance from consuming a high nitrate diet. But again, it's just like it's one study, really small sample. But like it's promising. Like yeah, I mean at the end of the day, like consuming more green leafy vegetables is like probably just good for overall health and it's like you know add throw some more of those in even if you don't notice an effect on your resistance exercise performance yeah maybe your blood pressure improves a little bit it's like yeah 
why not just go for it yeah i think that's that's well described and uh yeah better aniline that was one again evidence like it was an evidence-based supplement for the longest time and bodybuilders were taking it and i still remember the episode where i spoke about it to mike and i was like oh maybe it would be useful in like a metabolite phase because mm-hmm. like it would help muscular endurance and he was like hey you're it's probably buffering the things you're like trying to accumulate during a metabolite phase and i was like mm. oh shit maybe and he was just like hey there's no research showing that it helps muscle hypertrophy uh, it's not something i recommend and then uh, i never looked back and i haven't taken the itchy <laughs> supplement since so uh yeah it's, it doesn't surprise me that that recent study and i think that like you said it's like there hasn't been many studies looking at actual kind of what is the impact on muscle hypertrophy and theoretically right. Like we're not doing that sort of like level of endurance that maybe it would have that positive mm-hmm. effect and maybe even it's buffering the things that we're trying to accumulate, who knows. Um, and then the same, yeah, but the one on nitrates, that's one that I've just seen getting more and more popular. And I have looked at like, hey, how much beetroot do I have to eat? How much, like, what's this beetroot yeah. juice? And I've even looked at like buying some tablets and stuff. And I'm just like, ah, I just haven't committed to to doing it. And also Eric Trexler put out something from Mass. It was a study that showed like mouthwash, like nullified right. some of the effects. So if you're using mouthwash like regularly, you end up somehow like potentially nullifying the effects. And I was currently using mouthwash and I was just like, for God's <laughs> sake, <laughs> like I'm just, uh, I'm going to wait on that one until I run out and maybe, um, yeah, maybe I, I have to look at how much spinach I have to consume because that is something that like when you wilt spinach down, it becomes like, nothing so it's super easy to eat or you can put in like a smoothie or something it just disappears um i actually because again i told you i'm, I'm a bit neurotic you got the quantities a little a little bit of ocd there so <laughs> i can i can tell you tell you in my notes right now so the high nitrate diet contained 40 grams of raw spinach 80 grams of collard greens and then there was 130 grams of banana banana is not rich in nitrate but it was like, this was in comparison to the control diet, right? So the high nitrate group had the banana, whereas the control diet had orange juice, which has nothing. The banana has like a trivial amount. So like, you know, like that's how they scale the difference there. And then um, half a liter of pomegranate juice. Also like not, not that rich. But again, it's really um, beetroot and green leafy vegetables that are super rich in nitrate. So again, 40 grams of raw spinach, 80 grams of collard greens they used in this study. And that like accounted for over three quarters of the increase in, in nitrate content. Um, something, so something potentially to take into consideration with nitrate. There's actually one um, that I was just working on for the sports nutrition study, for the sports nutrition quiz for the month that examined. There's this cool new study that came out that sought to determine whether the effect of nitrate supplementation was affected by baseline dietary nitrate intake, right? So something that a lot of these studies haven't considered, right? They're just like, hey, uh, take this beetroot juice shot for your workout and let's see what happens. And it's like, yeah, that's interesting. But like, what if the participant was already consuming a high nitrate diet at baseline? Like does supplementing with more nitrate actually help? And in this one, small study, but they basically found that um, people who consumed a diet that was low in nitrates, they all benefited from nitrate supplementation. Um, but they looked at, like the test was uh, like this 12 minute 
running test. So it was like, how much distance, like how much work can you achieve in 12 minutes of running? And it was like, so nitrate has that, like would it have the same effect, you know, on resistance exercise performance in people with a low nitrate? Like, I don't know, maybe, but again, like there is, there is data showing that it can benefit resistance exercise performance. We take this new study in consideration showing that the effect seems to be most notable in people with a low nitrate intake. So I think like uh, there's 15 participants, 13 of them had like pretty darn low nitrate intakes and 12 of them saw an improvement in performance, right? And the two people who had very high dietary nitrate intake, they didn't see any benefit performance. And if anyone's paying attention to the numbers there, um, there is one person who had a low nitrate intake who did not benefit from supplementing with nitrate. And the interesting thing about that is that that person was the most highly trained participant in that study. He had the highest VA2 max of the participants, and he also performed the best on the running test. And there is prior research showing that in like very highly trained athletes that the effect of nitrate supplementation is like marginal or non-existent. So the benefits seem to be higher in like recreationally trained or anything else. So there, there are some factors that are play with. So like, I'm like, overall, probably not worth your money. Um, if you have already have a high dietary nitrate intake, probably especially won't have an effect. And then if like you're highly trained, I, again, I don't know if this applies to resistance exercise, right? So it's like, if it did, if it did apply, I'd be like, hey, Steve, based on your training status, like it's not going to do anything. <laughs> but ultimately, they have, to, they have to figure it out. But yeah, there's some some interesting factors to consider in there. Yeah, that is, that's actually very interesting because I imagine a lot of the people who are looking for this, I don't know, you kind of go through a phase of trying every supplement, you don't even think about right. what you're having and then you kind of really pull back and then it's for those people who, like myself, doing it for a long time, you're like, is there anything I could like uh, keep my eye on stuff just in case there's any like one percenters I can get hold of? Yeah. And it's like, hey, no, for a well-trained individual, it's, it's unlikely to be as beneficial. And I think your point on prior kind of dietary uh, nitrate consumption is super important because mm -hmm. it's actually uh, something I was just discussing with um, Brad Schoenfeld and Milo Wolf and uh, Dr. Pack about these volume, high volume studies, which I'm sure you've seen like the mm -hmm. 52 sets of quads, uh, yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. crazy. And uh, something they did really well in that study was they had like a washout period. They already accounted for their previous training volume. They had a washout period. They had a familiarization phase, whereas some volume studies, like some people are going up in volume, down in volume, based off prior. Right. It's like similar here. It's like, hey, if someone's coming down on nitrate intake versus up, like that's going to influence the result. So do you think it's, it, the more I talk to researchers or people who understand research, the more I really realize how like, hey, you, you really can't just take one research study at face value. Right. You, you have to understand like all these ins and outs and moving mm -hmm. parts. And it's why I'm so glad I can talk to people like yourself who understand <laughs> that that could influence results. Whereas again, you can get someone um, who just isn't aware of that. We've been speaking for quite a while, Mike, and I'm just aware that I have plenty more questions for you and i know you said you prepared so i'm kind of thinking rather than try and like it might take another hour to get through the rest of these we could talk at another time and uh because it's they're quite training related which i think would be a good little kind of uh, episode in its own right uh, how do you feel dude honestly it just depends on your schedule so fun fact about examine we have fridays off so i kind of just planned my day around this podcast so uh it's up to you man 
Cool. Well, I think um, I have Fridays are a good day for me. So we, I think we can plow it into another episode because I think we did a good job of yeah talking through your prep, uh, talking through like this element of supplementation. So I think it'll make a good additional episode. I know you've done the work yeah. for it. So oh, uh, I we have. Can definitely, we can definitely <laughs> we can definitely book that in because that will be a nice episode to kind of tie tie in things as well. So yeah, I want to say a massive thank you for you taking the time and. It was really interesting hearing about your backstory and those like little insides and outs. And I know a lot of the listeners, they're competitors or thinking about it. So I think it gives them some really good perspectives. So yeah, thank you for for taking the time. If if people want to keep an eye on kind of maybe your competitive uh, endeavors and uh, your training and any, I, I, a lot of the stuff that I've drawn from is from Mike's Instagram. So kind of every now and then you're putting out some really kind of interesting studies and takes on those studies and kind of reviews. Uh, so I'm kind of bigging up your Instagram is one place people can go, but where, where else? If your Instagram, give them that. And then if there's anywhere else. It's really just Instagram and then like examine. Like you can't like follow me individually on examine, but like you'll, you'll come across pages and stuff and it'll say like, I'm the lead author. So like you'll find my work there. And then, yeah, my Instagram is, I think it's just my name, RD, Mike Mary RD. So registered dietitian. Um, you know, I, I like go through these phases where like I put out content pretty consistently. I haven't put out content in a while, <laughs> but what I, when I do, it's usually something that I've read, like some really interesting research about recently. And then it's like a long winded post. And then I'm probably, I, there's probably a reference list attached to it. So basically like if you're not on Instagram, just to like, look at like clickbait posts and like quick whatever and like you actually want some some robust substantial content about nutrition extra science and stuff and like yeah give me a follow at mike mary rd sorry if you can hear my dog in the background she's like making can you hear i don't know if you can hear that i, I just heard it yeah. <laughs> she's uh having a dream so uh yeah no i and i agree like i think the majority of people who are on instagram probably aren't interested in that content but a lot of the listeners here probably are interested uh because yeah they're the type of posts that you would save and like refer mm -hmm. to and kind of read through so uh thank you again mike for coming on i'll make sure all of those things that are linked in the description box below and thank you guys for listening we'll talk to you soon losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the mini cut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The mini cut movement is open 24 seven. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.